Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 151 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk all about clematis with Jeff Jabko, Director of Grounds and Coordinator of Horticulture at Swarthmore College and the Scott Arboretum. The plant profile is on Penstemon, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Dr. Alan Armitage, who returns to share the last word on heat in the garden. This episode, we're joined by Jeff Jabko. He is the Director of Grounds at Swarthmore College in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, and also the Coordinator of Horticulture at the Scott Arboretum, which is on the grounds of Swarthmore College. Welcome, Jeff. Hello, Kathy. How are you doing today? Good. I am so excited to talk about everything clematis because it's one of my favorite plant families and I just love vining plants in general but especially easy to grow and fun and beautiful clematis so we'll get into all things about that marvelous vine in a bit but first we want to talk about you a little bit Jeff and your background and on the Garden DC podcast we like to ask our guests were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and or a green thumb? Uh, I would have to say yes. Um, I actually, I grew up in a suburban house in central Pennsylvania, a pretty rural area, small town, a great little small town. And my parents were into gardening. You know, they had built their house not long after they had gotten married and um, always took pride in a vegetable garden and a bit of landscape planting around the house and a nice clipped hedge and a pretty green lawn and all of that kind of thing. So that's kind of what I was born into. And I was just always fascinated with plants as a kid. And one of my earliest memories of actually planting something, and this seems so weird now, but on the edge of our vegetable garden, I would dig up from the vegetable garden, little oxalis, you know, with the little yellow flowers, the weed, <laughs> uh-huh. which is mm-hmm. actually, you know, now is its time. It's like popping up everywhere in my home garden. Pop it up everywhere. Yep. I was digging those and planting those into my own little plot of the vegetable garden because I thought they were such a cute little thing. <laughs> so that's that I can remember. And I was probably I was probably six or seven years old or something when I was doing that. But anyhow, um, I started, you know, being involved in all aspects of the garden and liking things and messing with it. Uh, I started taking care of neighbors' properties, you know, mainly mowing their lawn and helping out with some other things. Um, And then I got my first real job in horticulture when I was 14 years old. And I was working at a local landscape nursery. And that was just heaven to me to be able to do that. I loved it. It was uh, just a couple miles away, so I could ride my bike to and from work. Um, and so I'd work there a bit after school on Saturdays and during the summer, I was working essentially full time. Um, and it was a mom and pop operation. They had uh, a bit of a, a garden center, a bit of a nursery uh, where they propagated some of their own plants and sold. And they also had uh, a landscape crew that went out and did landscaping. 
So I had the opportunity to do all all aspects of that. And at that time, I, I, I was when I was really young, I was very interested in anything kind of artistic. And so I appreciated the beauty of flowers and a, a landscape and a landscape design. And uh, my uh, the people I was working for, Mr. and Mrs. Biddle was their name, and they taught me a lot. And they had great reference books and you know the Encyclopedia of Gardening and all of this kind of stuff. And I really just enjoyed looking at the landscape planning and drawings and all of that kind of stuff. So ultimately, I decided I really liked the artistic side, but I was very interested in science too. I mean, I loved science classes when I was in the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. So um, I really focused. It's like, okay, what I want to do with my life is I want to combine something that's artistic with something that is science-based. And I wasn't necessarily thinking all that through then. It's just that, okay, I like plants. I like learning about, I like watching them. I love learning about all the new cultivars that are coming out and all of that kind of thing. Uh, I was fascinated to go to a nursery trade show and just seeing the variety of whatever type of plant that it was. So I decided I was going to, um, when I was finishing up with high school, to go to college then, uh, where I majored in horticulture. I minored in landscape architecture, and my emphasis in horticulture was plant breeding. So that's kind of all how all of those things got combined. Then I went on to graduate school and um, I was uh, breeding small fruit plants. So I was really interested in small fruit production. So I had a chance to work with grapes and all the bramble fruits and blueberries and strawberries, all of that kind of thing. And I was combining plant pathology with it. So I was actually looking at disease resistance in grapes in North Carolina. And then after that, then I went back uh, where I had been an undergrad was Penn State University. And then I went back and worked for Penn State University for a while, uh, for six years. And then I started here at Swarthmore and have been in this role of managing all the property of the college um, and all of the developed part of the property is the Scott Arboretum, uh, where our Arboretum is all around the college buildings. So it's around the residence halls, the academic buildings, the administrative buildings, and we have a, a number of intensive garden areas around all of that. So mm -hmm. that's kind of my background in history uh, relative to horticulture. So yes, that's what I always wanted to do, and I've been able to do it. <laughs> yeah, definitely sounds like that chlorophyll green is running through you. And yeah. So marvelous to know at a young age what you want to do and pursue that. That's so great. Yeah, yeah, I was lucky to be able to do that, and I, you know, had some good mentors, you know, both in in uh, in college years uh, with the people that I first started uh, gardening with, the Biddles, you know, at their nursery and all of that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So that really helps. Yeah, I think garden mentors and people you can work with, and the Biddles sound super lucky that they had you. I mean, they lucked out to have such an enthusiastic employee. You know, I think they would have liked me to have taken over the business when I finished up at Penn State as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I really, you know, had the, the interest in, in really, you know, learning more. Um, and I was really interested in the plant breeding and all of that aspect of things. And just the opportunity of moving to a different area, learning different plants down in North Carolina, working with small fruit crops, which I was really interested in, all just really fascinated me. Hmm. Do you grow any fruit crops or fruit trees in your own home garden today? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually I do. Uh, I have a number of brambles. I've had blueberries. I've had cranberries over the time. A property is too small for fruit trees. I do have some figs. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so, yeah, a number of those things I still do. Yes. And for those listeners who are not in the Mid-Atlantic area, let's describe Swarthmore College's location and maybe a little bit about the growing conditions there for them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So Swarthmore, uh, we are pretty much just southwest of the city of Philadelphia. So we are about, uh, you know, 15 or so miles outside of Philadelphia. We are uh, our gardening zone. We are a cool zone seven. So we are really not all that different from DC. DC is probably a bit milder, Um, but we are right here in this area where Delaware, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania meet. Um, And we're drained by the Delaware River, um, which from here on campus, we were probably just a couple of miles away from the Delaware River. Um, The area we're in is the uh, Atlantic Coastal Plain, but the uh, upper part of campus, because we're on a bit of a slope, is where the Piedmont starts. And the Piedmont is all kind of the hilly topography of the area outside of Philadelphia. If any of your listeners have ever been to Longwood Gardens, Longwood Gardens is in the Piedmont. Okay, Mm -hmm. so it's kind of the the hilly area around that. Mm -hmm. And one of the nice things here in Swarthmore, uh, in this area of, uh, we call the Delaware Valley, we have lots of public gardens. uh, So lots of places for people to go to. And for those of us in the profession, we have lots of friends who uh, are also in horticulture. So lots of people to to be able to ask questions or learn from or, um, you know, share, commiserate with. Uh, so all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to visit the Scott Arboretum on campus last summer with the Perennial Plant Association. And I will say you described it as a cool zone seven. That day it was a little hotter. <laughs> that yeah, was August yeah. for sure. But I do remember it was a bit of a hill to get there and it is mm-hmm. a, a hilly campus. It's not like a really flat with right. a big quad in the middle type of campus. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our main quad actually slopes uh, mm-hmm. a, a significant amount going down the slope. Yeah. Yep. And we should also let people know it's free and open to visit at any time for anybody to walk through, correct? That's right. And if you just go to scottarboretum.org, you'll find all about it. Um, You can actually, through uh, Arboretum Navigator, look at all of the plants that we have uh, available, or you can see, you can map them out. Um, You can also get a a, a virtual tour, uh, look at our garden areas. And the, we always say that the, the Arboretum is open sunset, or excuse me, sun up to sunset um, every day of the year. Um, and lots of local people use us basically as a public park to come and enjoy the campus. Hmm, um, I can imagine. Yeah. And the students as well. It's such a beautiful campus. Right. I mean, as I said, you know, the students are surrounded by the Arboretum. So all of their, their years here. Uh, many of them, you know, they really take advantage of that. And uh, you know, we hire as many student workers as we're able to. So the Swarthmore College is an undergraduate liberal arts college and horticulture is not taught here. Uh, and everyone thinks that that is so peculiar. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's just not in the curricula of the college. But we give all of the students who want the opportunity to, uh, to work and learn about plants and landscaping and gardening uh, the chance to do that if we can. Hmm. And I'm sure it, it sells a few tuitions as well when people yeah. come and visit in the summertime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever anyone's coming there, they're always, uh, many, many alums come back and tell us that one of the things that their first impression of campus was 
the beauty of the campus and the arboretum and the plants surrounding all of the buildings. Mm -hmm. We also have a 200 acre woodland just adjacent to campus with trails and the Crumb Creek that runs through it. Yeah, I was going to say that I know you do like a rose festival and a couple horticultural professional yeah. events yeah. Um, that are open to the public too. Maybe we could just cover some of the highlight events that you host there really quickly. Yeah, well, just uh, two weeks ago, we had our first ever Peony Palooza mm. with the Mid-Atlantic Peony Society. And uh, we were open uh, for two full days. And this was a Peony competition, Peony display uh, peony flower arrangements, activities for kids to get involved with peonies and do some of their own flower arranging. And we gave out ribbons and all kinds of things. Uh, we had several hundred people over, coming in over those couple of days to do that. And last week was our uh, annual rose celebration. So we typically have that the first week of June or very beginning of June or very end of May, depending on how the college calendar goes. And it's a, a late afternoon and evening activity during the week um, because we find that's the best time to get families to come. And over the four hour period, we had over 500 people here for it. And the Rose Garden was at its peak. And one of the nice things about the Rose Garden is we also greatly feature peonies in that garden, which we're just kind of finishing up. The last of the peonies were there, but also we feature a lot of clematis in that uh, garden also. Because roses and clematis, the, you know, climbing on each other really, really go together because mm -hmm. their, their bloom times are overlapping. Yeah, such a classic combination. Yeah. And then a couple of the other activities we have uh, in summer, we have a woody plant conference. And this is you know, co-sponsored with several other local groups, the Hardy Plant Society, Longwood Gardens, uh, Chanticleer, uh, Morris Arboretum, Pennsylvania Hort Society. And then in October, we have the Perennial Plant Conference. And that's another co-sponsored one with um, Longwood Gardens, Hardy Plant Society, Chanticleer, and Pennsylvania Hort Society. Excellent. So highly recommend attending all of them or some of them if you can get up there. And I definitely want to get to that Peony Festival if I can next year. Yeah, it was a great time. Mm -hmm. I love Peony so much. So let's turn to the topic of the hour, clematis, or should I say clematis? And that's going to be our first discussion is <laughs> the pronunciation always comes up. So how do you say it, Jeff? Well, growing up, I called it clematis. Uh, but then since I learned that the correct botanical pronunciation is clematis, so the mm -hmm. accent is on the first syllable. But, you know, you can really say either way, um, mm -hmm. but, but the botanical pronunciation would be clematis. Um, in England, or even some people say that, say clematis. Um, so mm. you know, they kind of put their own accent to it. But in general, the majority of people call it clematis. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I hear it the most. But yeah, tomato, yeah. tomato, yeah, it's all the same. Exactly. As, yeah. as long as you're spelling it correctly, it gets yeah. across. But yeah, if you could try to remember clem, you know, Mm -hmm. <laughs> some as yeah. if it's somebody's name yeah. clematis yeah. um that helps a little bit and it's not the prettiest sounding word for such a nice plant <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like mm. that's right <laughs> yeah um so let's talk about the origins of clematis where mm -hmm. they are native to in the world and how they do for us here in the mid-atlantic yeah well actually uh clematis are pretty much native all around the world hmm. Uh, so we have a number of ones that are native to uh, North America. So, you know, just around here, you know, Clematis virginiana, 
uh, a small white flowered flowers in midsummer through late summer. But also, especially in southeastern United States, we have many clematis, and these are the bell-shaped clematis. Mm. Um, and those are kind of the hot new thing. There are a couple of researchers who are really exploring these out in the wild, because believe it or not, we still have some unnamed species of these plants. Wow. So some that are you know very specific to certain areas of the uh, southeastern United States. Uh, Clematis texensis is native to Texas, and that occurs in a lot of hybrid clematis that we use in the garden that people might be familiar with all the time. Mm -hmm. Some of the the, the red tulip-shaped blossoms. Uh, I just, in my garden, just this week are flowering um, Princess Diana, um, Sir Trevor Lawrence. Uh, That's another one that has that kind of look that texensis is in it. So it is in a lot of our hybrids. Many of the larger flowered, especially the, the big flowered ones, you know, the ones that are flowering around Mother's Day, those are from some hybrids that are mainly from Asia. Uh, and so, you know, those would occur in uh, some in, um, uh, in China, Korea, uh, some other areas uh, in Asia. And so those have been hybridized and selected with many other species uh, over time. But there are actually species growing, you know, pretty much all around the world. Um, they consist not only of the vining clematis, you know, those that sprawl and vine and attach through trees or shrubs or whatever in the wild, but some that are more like an herbaceous perennial, where they grow almost kind of shrub-like or sprawling on the ground, and then they die back, but they don't uh, actually attach or climb to anything. Uh, so there are all those different types that are like that. Mm. Uh, the native Clematis virana is one I have in my garden, and vase vine, I think, is one of the common names for yeah. it. Uh, Viorna, Clematis Viorna. Yeah. yeah, I always like <laughs> stumble over the Latin for that yeah, name. Yeah. But that is blooming now in my garden, and it is just the cutest little yeah. thing. It's a, a little purple upside down vase, as you, yep. as you would describe, yep. with a green kind of almost chartreuse um, edging to it. And so Mm -hmm. my two favorite colors, just a beautiful, well-behaved little vine. But I've been warned it it can take over a little bit. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, even though most of those are going to die back to the ground in the winter, during the season, they could get 8 to 10 or 12 feet long or tall, you know, depending on what they're growing on. So some can be, you know, if they're happy, they can really, really grow quite aggressively. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the person I obtained it from, a native plant seller at an event, said he got it from a ditch. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, somewhere along yeah. a roadside, it was scrambling along. So right. that right. kind of tells you that a, it's a tough plant, <laughs> right? And b, it's it's a good grower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about um, the hardiness of clematis. So it has a reputation, kind of like roses do even though they're super tough plants as well and kind of like peonies, that they're picky plants. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think they have a very wide hardiness zone and they will come back after a lot of abuse, like, you know, basically cutting them almost to the ground. What has your experience been? Yeah, I mean, so um, probably some of the the most cold hardy ones are ones that have the species of... um, Clematis viticella, and there's also some of the easiest ones to grow. So these are native to Europe, uh, the viticellas, and uh, they typically would die back or almost die back to the ground every year. 
And then during the season, they can grow, you know, eight to 10 feet tall uh, within that season. And they are just starting to flower now in my garden. Uh, so these have been used in lots of selecting and hybrids from over the years. So we have a whole range of colors for the, the Viticella types. Um, those, because they die back to the ground, they are, the roots are very cold hardy. So they can grow, you know, way up into zone four, uh, no problem at all. So they really have good cold hardiness. If it is some of the types where the stems stay alive above ground, so these would be some of the larger flowered ones, ones that were flowering around Mother's Day, uh, or ones that are just starting to come into flower now, those are with some species from China that are not quite as cold hardy. So those stems, you know, so these are the mainly you're going to get, especially for the ones that are flowering Mother's Day, they're going to flower on the stems where the stems stayed alive over winter from last year. So they basically would be flowering on what we would say are flowering on old wood. Um, if the winter would get really cold, those stems might die back. So those would be more of a, a tender plant to grow very, very far north, like up in zone four. Uh, so it might just be difficult uh, to grow those there. Or Clematis Montana, which Clematis Montana, you should have no problem growing around DC. Um, mm -hmm. I grow it here in my garden. Um, there have been one or two winters over the years where it would die back almost to the ground because we had really, really cold weather during the winter that lasted a long period of time. Um, but typically, you know, I would say from the Philadelphia area south, the, most of those would be uh, plenty hardy for Clematis Montana. Hmm. Uh, and those flower very early. Those are flowering in April. So you can get a whole range of uh, different types like that. And many times in gardening, you can adjust when things are going to flower by the pruning, which can get, people always get very, very confused about the pruning. And we can yes. talk about that later on. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but the, reason, the reason it can get so confusing is when does the plant on its own want to flower? And then we just need to learn how to work with those specific plants to do that. So sometimes trying to put them into a specific category is not, not helpful that way. Uh, because remember, these are hybrids. So, you know, even though it, it might be in a certain group of hybrid, it doesn't mean that it responds completely like everything else because it's not identical genetically to the other ones. So, hmm. so that's the plant breeder in me coming out talking that way. Yes. And it does <laughs> help if you know the hybrids provenance and what the combinations are. But often, you know, a home gardener purchasing a plant at a garden center it's not even going to have the Latin on the tag a lot. So. Right. Right. But you know, if, if you get a cultivar name, you can always look up the cultivar name and there are some great resources to find that. So you don't have to own, you know, the encyclopedia of Clematis to figure all of that out. Um, there is a um, wonderful organization, the international Clematis society, which I am immediate past president of <laughs> And uh, so it's a, a, a worldwide group of people very interested in Clematis. And we are sponsors now of uh, a website called Clematis on the Web. And so if you want to search on, and they actually, the, the website is clematisontheweb.org. So no spaces in the Clematis on the Web. And that will take you to a site that you have all different types of options to look through pictures 
or to search by a cultivar name or species name of a clematis. And it will tell you all about it. It will tell you about pruning. It will give you some pictures. It will tell you where it is native to. If it's a hybrid, it will tell you what the parents are. If that is known, it will tell you who introduced it and what year, all of that kind of stuff. So there's a way to at least, uh, if you know the cult of our name, to research it a little bit and find out, okay, when should I be pruning this? Or you know, what does it really look like? Is that what I really have kind of thing? Excellent. I'm looking at the website right now, and I'll, we'll include a link in our show notes, but okay. super valuable because, yes, that is the most um, asked question about Clematis and the most yeah. confusing points so that people have this fear of pruning it wrongly, pruning it at the wrong time. Um, yeah. So maybe we can jump into a little bit of that um, and go yeah. by category and, and just knock that out and then talk about some of the fun varieties that we yeah. love in a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, so for the pruning, um, don't be afraid to prune. And remember, the worst that you would do is cut the plant back to the ground. So, so if you do that, you're not going to kill the plant. Uh, you might be sacrificing that year's blooms or those, that spring's blooms. So if you get a plant that you really don't know anything about, you don't know the name of it or whatever, the first year or two, just don't do anything to it. Just let it grow. But pay attention to when does it flower without any pruning at all. And that might tell you some things. If it dies back to the ground, okay, that, that's what you know. It's going to die back to the ground. The stems don't typically stay alive. And so it's going to regrow from the base every year. All right. And if it is one of the, the vining types, then what you need to pay attention to is when does it flower? Does it flower very early, like April, on wood that was produced last year? Okay, that would put it into a certain aspect. Uh, and if it was in that, that kind of group, that's what we would formally call group one pruning. Now, we, do, we don't like to use these groups of one, two, three anymore, mm -hmm. but a lot of times that's what you're going to see on the nursery tag. Yeah, I also because see A, B, C. Yeah, so yeah. same thing. So mm -hmm. A is one, mm -hmm. B is two, C is three. But when we're trying to get people to think of it differently, because if we say prune that way and you're in upstate New York or are you in South Carolina, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Okay, for some of these hybrids, uh, because it's going to depend on what your climate conditions are for where you are. So what we're trying to do is say, okay, when does it flower on its own, and is it flowering on old wood or new wood? Okay. Um, so if you pay attention to that type of thing. So if it is this group that we were calling, you know, group A or one flowers very early, and for us, you know, in the D.C. area, the Philadelphia area, I would say these are flowering in. Um, anywhere from uh, second week of April to the first week of May, okay? Uh, Clematis Montana would be the main one in that group. A little bit farther south than Philadelphia, you can grow Clematis armandii, which is an evergreen one. I've had mine growing a number of years, and then I lost it. But I even know down around Baltimore, they do really well. And, and I would think in D.C. area, they would do perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that are going to be flowering even earlier. Very, very fragrant, beautiful plants. Uh, but it's just a little too cold for us to grow that here. Those were ones... Uh, for the, the Montanas and the Armandii's, they would 
in, if they were called that group one, um, you would do the pruning after they flower. And all that you really do is trim it back because uh, especially Montana's, Montana's can put out 10 or 12 feet of growth in a year. If you did not do any pruning in three or four years on a mature plant, all the flowers would be out 30 and 40 feet from the base of the plant. So every year right after flowering, you need to trim it back a little bit so that you can try to keep it in a manageable size. So that, that's why that you would want to prune that way. Because remember these plants, you know, unless they are a hybrid, you know, no one prunes them when they're growing out in the wild and they still flower and they still reproduce. Uh, but what we're trying to do is take best advantage to get the most flowers in a garden setting. So that's why we're doing this pruning. The, uh, the next kind of season for flowering would be what is happening in May. So usually I figure from early May to mid-May or beginning of June, uh, many of these are really large flowers. Mm -hmm. So you could have flowers anywhere from probably three inches up to seven inches across. This was a group that we previously called the early large flowered hybrids. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they flower very early for us, some of the really big ones. And it, it was uh, an interesting story. Uh, this year, I was noticing you know, we had a really nice flowering spring this year for, for all kinds of things. We had, you know, we had a mild winter. We had had enough of moisture going through early spring. We didn't have any late frost. Uh, temperatures were cool. We had a couple spells where it you know, reached low 80s. But other than that, um, the temperatures were cool, uh, but not cold nights. So flowers lasted a long time on, on all kinds of things. But I noticed how many uh, gardens I was seeing that had these that were flowering in early to mid-May. And it finally came to me, why? The time when most people are going to a garden center to buy plants is early May, right around Mother's Day. You know, Mother's Day is always, what, the second Sunday of May? So these are the ones that look great in the garden centers at that time. This is when they naturally flower. Exactly. It's it's yeah. a Mother's Day syndrome. It's yeah. for sure, yeah. not just yeah. in clematis, but it's in roses, oh, right. azaleas, yep. peonies. That's why they're so popular is because they're flowering yep. around that mid-May time. Yeah. But I do have to say the clematis that are flowering then, you know, most of these are what are, they're very large flowered, they're hybrids. They are probably the most challenging clematis to grow. Not that they're difficult, but they're the most challenging. And that is because of their requirements. So with these, the pruning that you would normally do, and this would be in late winter, so anywhere from late March to, or excuse me, late February to mid-March, something like that, uh, before the growth really starts, we might see the bud swelling, is you're going to cut these back to maybe like three feet tall. All right. And then those buds that are still, you know, in that remaining three feet, they are going to grow out and flower. So that, that shoot is going to originate from old wood, from last year's wood. And that's where you're going to have that flowering in, uh, in that early May period. Now, what would happen if you didn't prune it at all? You might have a little tip die back on it. So maybe it dies back a foot or two because these might reach, you know, eight feet tall or something like that. Maybe they die back a little, a foot or two at the top. And then those buds all the way out would grow and flower. You would actually get more flowers, but your plant would get much larger. So once again, if you didn't do any pruning for a couple of years, all of your flowers would be way out at the tips and you would have nothing near the base of the plant. 
So most gardeners just aren't really prepared to have anything get that big. You want your flowers kind of in this space of up to six feet tall kind of thing. Um, so if you didn't do pruning, the flowers would just be much farther out. Hmm. You just have a little bit of natural die back at the tip each year. So the plants just get too big. Um, it, and with that, if you cut it all the way down, so you cut it back to you know six or eight or 10 inches or 12 inches, mm -hmm. okay, you're going to sacrifice the flowers that you would get in early May. But all of that growth that's going to come out, you're going to have flowers later than in late June, July, maybe August. So you just delay the flowering if you mm -hmm. cut it back too hard. So you're not going to kill it, but you're just going to get flowers at a different time. Mm-hmm. And you might actually want to do that on purpose sometimes. Exactly. The other thing you can do and something that we really don't do in the United States so much, and I've learned a lot from my European friends in the International Climate Society, is after those, those large flowered ones that flower in the early part of May, once they finish flowering, do a bit of deadheading and cutting back of the shoots a little bit. You know, I mean, in a little bit, maybe a foot, two feet, something like that. And make sure that the plant has a good watering um, at least once a week. If we don't have a good rain, you know, give it a good bucket of water once a week. You'll get new shoots that come out that most likely will give you a second flowering in summer. Now, it might be July, it might be August, it might even be early September, but you will get more flowers uh, in through the season then. So you can actually get those to flower twice a year by doing that type of thing. Hmm. And so that's cutting back maybe six to 12 inches so yeah, right at, you're right at the end of flowering. You basically, mm -hmm. you deadhead and you just trim it back a little bit, trim the shoots back a little bit. Okay. So they're going to be buds, you know, in the axles of those leaves farther back. And those are going to put out new shoots that are going to get a couple of feet long that are going to set new flower buds. Great. Good to know. Yeah. And yeah. I love that, that you did answer my question that I was going to ask about what if you never prune at all? Like yeah. what, what's yeah. the harm in that and letting it yeah. go? But you're just pruning more to cultivate more flowers and to have them at a more visible full um, level. Yeah. And then you know, what you would see in the that last group of pruning, that, so that'd be the group C or the group three. Mm -hmm. um, and these would be a lot of the uh, viticella types, the viorna type, like you had mentioned, uh, things that might have integrifolia or diversifolia in, which are some other species or hybrid species. Um, these are the ones I always say, if you're going to give a gift to a new gardener, give them a clematis that would be in that group. Or if you haven't grown before, here's the ones that you should start with. The reason is they, they tend to be very forgiving, very easy to grow. They tend to be vigorous, especially if they have some viticella in them. They do wonderfully in our area. They come in all range of flower colors, sizes, shapes. So there's a wide diversity to pick from. And pruning is really easy. Basically, you cut them back. I always say cut them back to you know somewhere between 6 and 12 inches. And you do that in late winter. So anytime late February to the middle of March, just cut them back 6 to 8 inches. Make sure they have a trellis or something to grow on, up through a shrub, into a tree, whatever. They're going to grow and they are just starting to flower now. So I have, um, I probably have a half a dozen of different ones of this type, uh, different cultivars flowering in my garden right now. Now it's probably more than half a dozen. Now that I'm thinking of it, it's probably more like 12 or 15 different <laughs> types. <laughs> um, so, uh, so it's, it's, they're very easy to grow that way. And it makes pruning 
you know, easy. I always find that people in that, that last group we talked about, the flowers in May, it's like, well, you know, I'm supposed to cut it back to three feet. Did I cut it back too much? Not enough. They really worry it to death. Mm -hmm. uh, this other group is like, no, just cut it back six to eight inches or, you know, even up to 12 inches. Then forget about it. Let it give it something to grow on and it'll do just fine. Mm -hmm. um, now, what if you didn't prune that? There'd be a natural little, so many of these are very vigorous. You know, these, some of these could get anywhere from six to eight, 10, even 12 feet in a season. All right. Uh, so that is if they have, you know, good moisture and enough of fertility in the soil, they could actually get that big. If you did not prune them, the tips will die back a little bit, but all the rest of the, that cane that grew last year, that vine that grew last year is still going to be alive. It's going to put out another four or five or six or seven or eight feet of growth with flowers on that. So this is even more extreme than the first group I was talking about. So the flowers are going to be way out at the end. And then you get no flowers in the, that two-year-old wood or three-year-old wood that you haven't pruned back. So all the flowers are going to be way out at the tip. Uh, so that's why we prune those back and prune them back that severely every year. So if you inherit one of these, you move into a place where it hasn't been pruned and your flowers are way out at the tip. Mm. Okay, wait till next winter, cut it back that hard, let it regrow, and then see when it's going to flower. Is it going to flower then at this time in June? Uh, so that would be uh, that would be the way to treat that. But those really are the easiest ones to really get started with clematis. Mm. Good advice. And yeah, that would take some of the fear out of it. But then that you always are, you know, have a little trepidation about those first severe cuts yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. but yeah. experiment and know that you're probably not going to kill it so that's mm -hmm. good advice mm -hmm. um and how about the fall blooming ones and i'm, I'm going to bring up yeah. the uh invasive one um right the sweet autumn clematis sweet autumn clematis that yeah. um, a lot of us planted you know yeah. a decade plus ago and it is trying to take over the world now yeah you know i i planted one Let's see, I moved into my house around 1992 and I planted one um, at the base of a Norway maple. Ultimately, I got rid of the Norway maple, of course. Um, and then I got rid of that plant a number of years later. You know, I still have seedlings coming up in that bed. Mm -hmm. And then that, that's why we really don't recommend it. It is yep. very invasive. You know, the seeds just spread by the wind and they will pop up everywhere. I mean, it smells wonderful. Uh, they really are quite beautiful. But if you want something that looks like that, uh, gives you the same type of idea. Our native Virginiana does that. And it's not as invasively aggressive. Um, you know, you could still grow them from seed, but you don't see seedlings popping up everywhere like you do um, the sweet autumn clematis. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, some nurseries are still selling the sweet autumn clematis, uh, but it's one that, that we just do not recommend to be grown at all. Yeah, I would avoid it. It's coming up everywhere, though I've, you know, tried to kill it several times. Yeah. <laughs> that does yeah. show you some of the vigor of some of the clematis vines. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really just tolerant of, you know, pretty much all of our, our growing conditions, anywhere from the deep south, I'm just thinking of the eastern seaboard, from mm -hmm. the deep south, probably all the way up into uh, southern New England or even the middle of New England. Uh, probably doesn't grow farther north than that, be getting too cold. But uh, but yeah, it really is tolerant for a pretty large area and all different types of conditions too. Hmm. 
And yeah. so a little bit ago, you talked about vining up uh, your clematis through a tree, a shrub, some of them mm -hmm. like to scramble on the ground. So let's yeah. talk about some of the good companions mm -hmm. uh, for clematis. Yeah. Um, well, you know, one of the ways that I really like to grow them is through other things. Um, so in our, our rose garden on campus, for example, you know, we do have some on trellises. Um, we have some climbing roses, so we'll have them kind of paired with the climbing roses. So they would grow right along and they would use the rose or the trellis itself for attachment. Um, we have some that are just growing in between, you know, shrub roses. So they kind of lean or grow in through and amongst these other ones. So remember earlier I said about uh, clematis, you know, some are going to attach and mm -hmm. some are not. Mm -hmm. So some examples of like the cultivar, you know, Arabella or Alianushka, these are ones that I say they're leaners. You know, they can get three and four feet tall, but they don't actually attach to anything. They'll kind of grow through or sprawl or lean into other shrubs or herbaceous perennials around them for support. Um, so those are ones that you could let sprawl in the ground or just kind of do their thing in amongst other plants. Uh, but then the clematis that are actually climbing and attaching, the way they attach, it's very different from ivy or other vining plants that you might have. Clematis um, will have a stem and they have paired buds going along the stem so that the, the buds are opposite each other along the stem. And then you would have a leaf that comes out from that. And typically that leaf, it, this, this stem of the leaf called the petiole uh, is attached to the stem and the petiole is bare and then it will usually end up in three little leaflets out on the end. So what attaches it's actually that petiole or the stalk of the leaf is what will twirl or wrap around something and that's what how the vine's going to attach onto something okay so it's not like uh, um, something that's going to have a hold fast like Virginia creeper or it's going to have a little like almost like aerial root which attaches to something like English ivy. So they actually just wrap around something. In order for that to wrap around something, it has to be a relatively thin diameter. So the largest diameter is about the diameter of a pencil. If it's larger than that, the petiole really can't wrap around it. So you can't really grow a clematis on a wooden lattice trellis. Uh, because it's not going to be able to wrap on. You might be able to weave it in through the individual wooden lattice pieces mm -hmm. or to tie it in, but it's not going to self-attach to it. You know, unless that the, the vines are going up on both sides and the petioles are kind of reaching through and attaching to other stems of the same plant. Mm -hmm. So you have to tie it in. So the important thing is when you're thinking of some sort of structure or trellis for it to grow on, um, it needs to be, you know, the diameter of a pencil or smaller. Mm -hmm. So just keep that in mind on for whatever structure you're growing it on. You know, other than, like I say, you're actually going to be tying it on to the structure. Yeah, I, I think of it like kind of like pea vines, similarly, where they grab onto. And definitely right. something pinky width or thinner pencil is, is a great description to yeah. have something to grab onto there. I've used like those thin green garden stakes to guide mm -hmm. clematis, right. like get it started and kind yeah. of lean it towards something. So then it will finally grab the, the more decorative trellis that I want it to go on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was going to ask you for best trellising materials. Yeah. Well, and actually, you know, that using small sticks like that too. So some of those are the dyed bamboo sticks or mm -hmm. something like that, but mm -hmm. of a thinner size. 
that's how you would get it to like grow up into a tree. You know, so if it's a low branch tree to get the clematis up into those lower branches and then in a, a tree or in a shrub, you're growing it at the base of a shrub. There are plenty of, you know, the outer branches that would be of the proper diameter for the clematis to attach to. Um, so for for materials, I mean, um, I have a, a stone house and I have a um, southwest corner of the house that is right next to the driveway. And I thought it needed to be softened. So I have a clematis, a Polish spirit uh, is the cultivar, and it's just started flowering. It's a wonderful, the Polish spirit is one of my, that's probably my go-to plant for a novice gardener. Mm -hmm. I will always buy them a clematis Polish spirit. It's wonderful, purple, uh, just beginning to flower now, flowers for a long time. When it's done flowering, you can cut the whole plant back by a half. Uh, and then give it some water, a bit of fertilizer or compost, and it will you'll get another crop of flowers late in the summer. But this um, growing on the corner of my house, the clematis is not going to grow up a stone wall. It's not going to self-attach. So what I've done is I've gotten some garden uh, wire uh, fencing, and I use the the openings, the diameter are two by four inch. So two by four inch openings in the wire fencing. You can usually get this in widths of three feet or four feet wide. And so I will cut it to the, the length that I want it to be. And I will, I anchor it into the stone where I have a couple of masonry nails going into the mason between the stones and then wire this wire mesh on the outside of that. You don't want the wire mesh, or if you're using a plastic mesh or a garden netting or something like that, you don't want it right on the face of the stone or a wooden fence or your siding of your house. You want to project it out um, an inch and a half to two inches or even three inches because the plant needs to be able to get around and back to wrap around it. If it was flush to the wall, you wouldn't be the, the plant's petioles wouldn't be able to wrap around it. So you want to project it out from the wall just a little bit. And so I have this going up the corner and um, you know, my Polish spirit, which was it's a it's one of the, the viticella types. Uh, it was cut down to the ground. I cut mine down to about six inches high in late winter. And now it is up probably nine, maybe 10 feet tall and flowering, just starting to flower all along it. So it's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Easy one to do that with. So I like to use that wire mesh in instances like that. Um, in my vegetable garden, right now flowering is Clematis venosa violacea. I have it growing up on my um, uh, thornless blackberries. So the thornless blackberries are just starting to flower right now, and my Clematis is flowering along with it. So the Clematis actually uses the stems of the blackberry as its support. Uh, so that's a really nice kind of ornamental feature in the vegetable garden. Um, so I like to use structures like that, but also I build a lot of um, makeshift uh, garden posts. And I'm not just, you know, I'm not thinking of a four by four post, um, but what I do is I get a piece of uh, metal rod um, reinforcing bars or rebar, which you can get at a big box, um, you know, hardware type of store. Um, these are metal rods, you know, very kind of uh, rough looking. They will rust to a dark brown color. They're used as reinforcing metal in concrete structures. So that's why they're called reinforcing rods or reinforcing bar. Um, if you go to a, a, a concrete supply place, 
they typically come in uh, you know 10 or 12 foot lengths, but they can cut it to size. I usually I have quite a few of these, and I usually get um, anywhere from half inch to three quarter inch diameter rods, and I drive them down into the ground. So I, if I'm going to use a large one, I'm going to use a three quarter inch. I will um, get a rod that is probably anywhere from eight to ten feet long. Get on a ladder, drive it down into the ground, two to two feet or so. And then I just use that as a basic support. And then I will wire in branches or twigs around it to essentially cover it. And so I'm making kind of a post type structure, but it's made up of all of these different smaller pieces of wood that I've salvaged uh, or branches that I salvage. Just make sure that you have some of it that is small enough in diameter for the clematis to go around. And then I usually loosely wrap it with some galvanized or copper wire. Um, and then this is my, my very kind of rustic support for clematis to grow up. So I have a number of these in my garden. Um, in addition, my partner is into metalworking. And so I'll say, you know, I have this clematis I want to plant. I need something that's going to be eight feet above the ground. I want it to kind of look obelisk-like. And, you know, here's the diameter of the stuff that I want. And then he will make it up for me. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky. And I love yeah, your yeah. description of the rustic rebar structure. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, that's something any of us can DIY pretty right. easily. Right, right. Yeah, and if you don't know what rebar is, just go into a hardware store, ask them if they have rebar, and just tell them you need something that's five-eighths to three-quarters of an inch in diameter, and you want to start with a 10-foot-long piece, <laughs> and they'll get you set up. Great. Yeah. And so for our final minutes, how about let's talk about our favorite varieties and maybe some of the new ones that we're mm -hmm. trialing and coming on the market. And I love yeah. that you mentioned Polish spirit because it was given to me years ago as Polish Sprite. Oh. <laughs> it was a, a mistake on the tag. Um, mm -hmm. So for years I was calling it Polish Sprite. And so yes, Polish spirit, I can attest as well, super easy beginning clematis to have in the garden. Yeah. Yeah. And another one that, that I would not be without, I mentioned, is Venosa violacea. This is a, an old variety. Uh, it's a wonderful purple. Um, and the nice thing about it is running down the middle of each of the tepals. So the brightly colored things we don't call petals in clematis because clematis don't have true petals or sepals. So when they don't do that, we call them tepals. So there's brightly colored parts, the tepals, it has a white bar running down the middle of each deep purple tepal. Uh, and so it really, it's this star look to it uh, because of that white running down the middle, really beautiful. And, uh, you know, I'm a working person, so I get to see my garden very early in the morning or in the evening. And as the sun is setting, these just glow because it's that dark purple in the back and the white running through the middle of each one. So it's really nice to see at twilight how bright it is. And it's one of those easy to grow, uh, you know, cut it back to you know, six to 12 inches every winter kind of clematis. So that's one that I really love. Um, another one that is a little bit more unusual, but easy to grow is called Roguchi. And this is a big, deep purple urn shaped one. Now, this is one that will not attach, so you need to give it some kind of support. And I grow this up through an obelisk that my partner made it, that made me, and it is about uh, 10 to 12 inches in diameter, and I have this planted in the middle. And I just make sure when it's first growing in the spring, and it will, for me, it will get up to eight feet tall, 
but it grows up through the middle of that. <clears throat> and it started flowering about two weeks ago with these wonderful deep, deep purple urns. Mm -hmm. uh, and it makes a wonderful cut flower. And actually, any of the clematis make wonderful cut flowers. And if you cut them as they're just opening, they will last in a vase for seven to 10 days if you mm. give them good treatment. They're really, really wonderful. And how much of the vine can you cut back on there? Because I'm always worried of cutting back too much to use as a cut flower. Um, you know, if you have a good, good hardy plant, um, you can cut it back really quite hard. Mm. You know, you know, okay. it's not like you're going to be taking every blossom. It's not like mm -hmm. you're going to be removing all of the foliage of the plant. Um, Usually for Roguchi, I mean, I will, uh, I will usually cut individual blossoms and leave a stem, uh, cut a stem of anywhere from probably six to 10 inches on those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can attest that I see Roguchi at many public gardens and people go crazy when they yeah. see it. They just love it. You should see surrounded by photographers usually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. a great one. And yeah. earlier you had talked about some of the big wide open ones which i had always referred to as the dollar store flowers because mm -hmm. it literally mm -hmm. looks like somebody went and bought a bunch of fake flowers from the dollar store and stuck it on a trellis like yeah. when you come up to it, you're like this is a real flower it's big. Yeah. they're so big and dramatic yeah. um so maybe some of your favorites from that category yes so you know they're going to have some of these that are going to be flowering like in the may time the you know really early ones or ones that are going to be flowering a little bit later on so you're going to recognize some of these names because some of them are quite old like jack manny you know which is going to be flowering very shortly you know big big purple is probably one of the most popular it's an old one it was introduced in 1858 believe it wow. or not so it's been around for a long time yeah that's been blooming for me for in dc for a couple weeks now but yeah oh, it? it's, okay. it's a long right. time bloomer too it just keeps yeah. on going and going yeah uh hagley hybrid is another old one um that is you know of that that large group like that um guernsey cream the president uh the newer one that i really like is uh warshawska nike uh or warsaw nike uh, it's deep red, uh, red velvet, it, uh, red violet, and the flowers almost look like velvet. Uh, so it's a really, really nice one. Um, Westerplata is um, bright red. Um, so red's kind of a, a neat color in it. One of my favorites in these uh, large flowered ones, which just started flowering not long ago, is one that is called Bletkinionyol. Uh, and I'm sorry for pronunciation of some of these. This is a Polish variety. Sometimes it's translated as blue angel, uh, which is what it actually means. Mm -hmm. But pale blue flowers and along the edges of each of the tepals, it, it's a little wavy. Uh, and it's this gorgeous pale blue. Um, uh, Cardinal Wyszynski is a really nice one. Prince Charles is a wonderful light blue. Mm. Um, and that's a that's a very nice one. Uh, in that, that group like that, some of the newer ones I'm really excited about um, are that we just have so many that are that are kind of coming on the market now. So it makes it really, uh, really interesting. But one is called Dutch Sky. Uh, this is one that I picked up in Holland a number of years ago. And in 2014, um, I organized a uh, clematis trial because I was having the International Clematis Society come here several years after that. And so we started planting a bunch of plants in 2013 to welcome the Clematis Society. And I worked with breeders um, at several different places in Europe. So in Holland, in Britain, in Poland, 
and we imported uh, clematis that we had in the trial. And so we did those trials here in the Delaware Valley. The three main locations were the Scott Arboretum, uh, also at Longwood Gardens and at Chanticleer. Um, and so we had 52 different cultivars and we all were growing at least three of each cultivar. Um, and then we had um, oh, probably 10 or 12 different private gardens that we gave subsets of those to, to plant in the, that. But the number one out of all of them from our record keeping is one that is called Dutch Sky. And it's one that I found in Holland um, from a, a nurseryman in Holland who introduced it. And it is a wonderful pale blue. When it first comes out, it's pale blue. As the days go on, it gets a bit whiter. Mm -hmm. uh, very vigorous, gorgeous, gorgeous plant. Um, and it was the favorite of all of us. A very early one that is large flowered is a newer one that is called Sugar Sweet Blue or Sugar Sweet Lilac. It comes in both colors. And the nice thing is they're fragrant, which is a new thing in clematis. So these were bred by a friend of mine from Holland, uh, Ton Hannock, and um, wonderful plants. Um, I, I had flowering that went on for almost three weeks this year, starting in April, and it was the nicest thing uh, flowered really well in a very, very lightly shaded area. Um, and the fragrance is nice. The color is nice. Just hmm. a beautiful plant. Can you describe that fragrance? It, uh, I would describe it as a very light floral lilac hmm. kind of fragrance. Okay. Yeah. Uh, with a bit of sweetness. Yeah. And you mentioned it tolerates shade and that won't reminds me of one of my favorites light which shade. is light yep. shade Very i was going to say silver moon is one i recommend that that blooms for me in almost full shade oh good um yeah. and i've just it just blooms up a storm i've got it trained up the side of my gazebo which is under oak trees mm -hmm. so got the shade yeah. of the gazebo and the shade of the trees so if it can bloom there i feel like it can bloom in almost all yeah. shade situations yeah, you know, in the old-fashioned variety, Hegley Hybrid, which mm -hmm. is a pale pink, it actually looks much better in the shade mm. because those blossoms, if they're in full sun, they they really bleach out and it yeah. almost looks to kind of a gray grayish pink. But if it's in some shade, then it'll be the really beautiful shade of pink that it should be. Mm -hmm. So there are some that can do uh, pretty well in some light shade like that. Um, you know, if people are looking for varieties... The International Clematis Society has a free publication on the website. So once again, clematisinternational.com. And if you just go to the, the link along the side and look for the tab that is recommended clematis. So these are clematis basically from a worldwide group and we divide them up. So we probably have, oh, probably 40 or 50 different clematis in the different groups, different flowering times. It's like, these are the ones that we can recommend pretty much growing anywhere clematis can be grown. Uh, so it's a really great look, a great uh, uh, list to download and take a look at what those are. Great. So it's a really nice one. Yeah, we'll definitely include that link as well. And for some trial ones, I was going to ask you your opinion of Taiga, which I've been mm. trialing and I just love. Um, it's more of a filled purple green. So it's T-A-I-G-A. Yeah. Yes. Taiga. Yes. Have yeah. you been growing that one? Uh, we have, we have. And I have to say, that's not a beginner's clematis. It, it's really neat. And some people just love these kind of uh, double or semi-double flowers. Uh, and that's one in that group. Uh, they are a little bit more challenging to grow. Mm -hmm. uh, Taiga is nice because it doesn't get huge. It stays a bit more compact. 
Um, but people just kind of have to understand a little bit more about how to grow it. Uh, you don't want to cut that one back real hard. You want to keep some of the old stems so you have some of those early blossoms with it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I would just say, so I would just caution, that's probably not one to start with, but it really is uh, an interesting one. Also, there's a whole series of new ones that are offered by a breeder from the Isle of Guernsey, Raymond Evison. And these are making their way onto the U.S. market. And um, a, a number of these uh, are, are I really uh, like because he's breeding for compactness. So something that will be in the range of maybe three to four feet. And then he has some that even are smaller. He's calling the window box series. So these can be used in, um, in a, a, a large pot, a large container on your patio with a little bit of trellis. And they, most of them have larger flowers, really beautiful flowers with some interesting coloring. Cezanne uh, is one mm -hmm. and Sally is another one that I really like. Um, but a number of uh, these are uh, Raymond Evison Clematis. Uh, so if you just search for that Raymond Evison Clematis, you're going to see a number of those. And there are some wholesale nurseries in the United States that are growing these. So these are going to become more available in our garden centers for some of these more compact clematis. So there's a, it's a whole new niche uh, of oh, yeah. where they could be grown. Especially for apartment, patio, rooftop yeah. gardens. I have been seeing them trained on small, like a two-foot or three-foot trellis stuck right mm -hmm. in the middle of a large container. So. Yeah perfect for that small space yeah. gardener and what we've done for some of those you know they are you know they're flowering now if we cut them back so cut the whole thing back by a half give it a bit of compost or some fertilizer uh, make sure you give it a good watering a couple times a week uh, you will get reflowering again in six weeks and really it is six weeks you could almost time it exactly for that you'll get new shoots come out in flowering in six weeks so you could get several flowerings through the year with these by treating them that way Great advice. Yeah. And let's close out maybe talking about fertilizing and, and mm -hmm. any tips for that, because do they need fertilizer? Uh, they do. Actually, uh, clematis you know, really appreciate nutrients in the soil. So, but I'm not saying that you have to be applying a chemical fertilizer. Uh, you, for one thing, for clematis in selecting the site, it should be a, a good drainage site. Clematis like to have even moisture. Okay, so regular moisture during the growing season, but I'm not saying soggy or wet or where water would puddle after a heavy rain. So they need decent drainage. Uh, they should have good quality soil. So mix in lots of compost before you even plant the plant. Uh, typically, what I do for mine is I will use um, my own generated compost. So I'll do a top dressing of that, you know, in late winter when I'm doing my pruning, trimming, cleaning up uh, around the clematis. I will put some of my own compost down. Uh, and then uh, if I need to add additional, so if I'm going to be pruning them back, uh, you know, after flowering to get them to reflower, I will usually use an organic, uh, organic slower release fertilizer, uh, something lower in nitrogen. So something like you would use for vegetables, uh, an organic fertilizer. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I do with mine. Uh, but they do need to, if you want them to reflower and you want them to really be vigorous, you will have to be adding some nutrients over time, either through compost or some organic fertilizer, that type of thing. But the, the watering during the summer is really important. So I try to remember if we haven't had a, you know, a half an inch to an inch of rain each week, I will just make sure that I carry a bucket or two of water over to those individual plants and make sure that I'm watering them. 
good to know, especially uh, this kind of dry spring that we've been having in the mid-Atlantic and the east, um, because you tend to, you know, ignore the vines. You're, you're looking at things that are wilting, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that right. those usually you're, are kind of the set-it-and-forget-it plants, so good to know that we need to keep on top of that watering. Yeah, if you see a clematis that is wilting because of dry, it's like, okay, you're probably going to be losing that stem then because they really are quite tough and tolerant. And, you know, one of the things that used to, if you look in old gardening books, they always say, you know, plant the roots in the shade in the top of the sun. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't the shade. I mean, basically the idea was keep the roots cool, but I mean, keeping them moist. So a good layer of mulch. Or, or other things like that. So you don't want to plant it where the roots are like in hot competition with other things. So mm-hmm. even if you're planting it so it's going to grow up through a shrub or into a tree, plant it far enough away from the root system of those other plants so it's not competing for the moisture. Good tip. How can our listeners follow up and get more information from you? Uh, well, they can contact the Scott Arboretum. So it's scottarboretum.org. Um, and you know, there's a way to get in touch with us there. Um, I'm also, uh, I, I teach at Longwood Gardens. So I've taught classes at Longwood Gardens all about clematis, a several week class uh, there for that, uh, or uh, contacting the International Clematis Society. So those are all ways to kind of get in touch with us here or come to any of our conferences here at the Scott Arboretum. Great. I'll have those links in our show notes. And I thank you so much, Jeff, for this deep dive into all things Clementus. I think we all learned some new things. And I think I've added a few names to our shopping list as well. Okay. And I think once you look at that, the the recommended Clementus list, you'll probably add a few more than that too. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kathy. It's been fun. Penstemon plant profile. Beard tongue, Penstemon species, is a North American native plant that is often used in pollinator gardens. The flower is tubular and similar in looks to a miniature snapdragon. Penstemon is a nectar source for specialized native bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds. Plant it in full sun. It is hardy to USDA zones 3 to 10. There are dwarf selections and species that can grow up to five feet tall. Typically, most penstemon cultivars are about three feet tall. Penstemon is deer and rabbit resistant. It is also drought tolerant and not picky about soil types. It does not need compost, aged manure, or really any fertilizer. However, this tough wildflower is known to be a short-lived perennial So, allow it to self-seed to extend the life of the plant in your garden, or divide and replant it in the spring. In recent years, new breeding programs of penstemons have brought us plants with dark foliage and longer lives, including Husker Red, the perennial plant of the year in 1996, Dark Towers, Blackbeard, and Midnight Masquerade have joined the penstemon parade in recent years. The Royal Horticultural Society has more than 950 penstemon in its plant lists. Two species native to the Chesapeake Bay watershed region are Eustace Creek Beard Tongue, Penstemon australis, and Foxglove Beard Tongue, Penstemon digitalis.
and one species native to the eastern U.S. is Penstemon smallii. Penstemon, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, in my own home garden, hydrangea and spirea are putting on their show and looking marvelous. Over at the community garden plot, we're harvesting the garlic and handfuls of blackberries. We've planted zucchini seeds, pepper seedlings, and tomato seedlings, and the peas and lettuce greens are starting to peter out in the coming summer heat. We want to thank our latest listener supporter, Luella R. Benedetto. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast. And we have an offer for all listeners from Dr. Alan Armitage. He is offering a discount of free domestic shipping when ordering any of his books through June 2024 at alanarmitage.net. Simply enter the code last word at checkout to get that offer. Some local gardening events we wanted to call to your attention include a talk on great ground covers to the Silver Spring Garden Club by myself, Kathy Gents, on Monday, June 19th. This was rescheduled from a May date, and this takes place at Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland at 7.30 p.m. that evening. You can find out full details at silverspringgardenclub.com or at our Facebook page. This event is open to the public and free to attend. I will be signing and selling both my book on ground covers and the urban garden before and after the talk. You can attend the Under the Arbor Tussies Mussies program, a bouquet with a message, on Saturday, June 24th at the National Herb Garden inside the U.S. National Arboretum in Washington, D.C. This is being hosted by the USNA chapter of the Herb Society of America, and you can find out more details at herbsociety.org. No registration required. You can just drop by. And Washington Gardener Magazine is hosting our photo contest for our 17th annual set of winners at Meadowlark Botanical Gardens in Vienna, Virginia. The opening reception is on Sunday, July 30th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. at the Meadowlark Visitor Center lobby. And after that, you're able to view the winning photos on the display wall through August 30th. Happy gardening! Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. 
There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Cordo.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Uh, good day, everybody. It's Dr. A in the garden with the last word. And uh, I'm sitting in my garden right now, and it's about, no, oh, 85 degrees, humid. Birds are happy. Uh, plants are, are reasonably happy because I've done the best I can in the spring when the temperature's been cool to make them strong. I've enhanced my soils so that they actually have dirt to grow in. I fertilize as needed. So the plants are ready to go into this heat. And there's no doubt about it. We, we, I don't care where you live, it gets hot and getting hotter all the time. So what are we gonna do about it? Well, we're not really going to do anything about it except as I mentioned, we're gonna make the plants stronger in the spring. So when they go into these stress times, and that's exactly what it is, they can handle it. Of course, we're gonna to have to perhaps irrigate more. Of course, we're gonna to have to be ready when it doesn't rain for you know, three weeks and it's 90 degrees, of course we're gonna to have to be ready for that. But we're gardeners, we're used to this. This is just one more thing that we put up with. But let me tell you that the only thing that you have to think about when you're talking about what's the deal with heat is nighttime temperatures. Daytime temperatures are not the issue because during the day, plants are making food through photosynthesis and sunlight. Of course, if it's really hot during the day, a hydrangea is gonna wilt. I mean, who puts a hydrangea in the sun anyway? But of course they are. Or plants with large, wide, thin leaves, they're, they're, they're going to be the ones you see wilting more often than not. If you want to have a plant that doesn't wilt, then get a plant that has very, very small leaves. <laughs> Cacti or sedums with very waxy leaves. Uh, these plants don't lose water, and that's the deal, and that's why they wilt. But again, as far as the health of the plant is concerned, when it gets hot and stays hot at night, plants respire. That's the opposite of building food. It's essentially using food. And the more they respire, you know, the weaker the stems and the harder it is for these plants to do well. So if it's 
80 degrees at night, then you got real, that, that, that's when we have real issues. And we have to do our best, as they say, keep the plants strong and, you know, water as needed. But it's not day temperatures, it's night temperatures that becoming issues. So don't, don't sweat it too much when it goes to 90 degrees during the day. Let's drink lots of tea or drink lots of wine. The plants themselves will drink lots of water, but they'll be fine. And if the night temperature gets high and stay high, well, then you may have to think about what kind of plants you want to put in there. I'm living in North Georgia. It's hot. It's humid in the summer, but I'm doing just fine. Thank you. And my plants are doing very, very well. So heat, we got it. We live with it. We do our best to put up with it and to make our plants as strong as they can be so that they will put up with it as much as we do. Well, that's my last word on heat and heat in the garden and essentially nighttime temperatures. Have fun, stay dirty, stay happy, and always have something to look forward to. Be a gardener. Until next time, this is Dr. A in the garden with the last word. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.